Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Ryan. Uh, Today's Wednesday, October something or other, October 16th. Uh, I'm going to release this one tomorrow. Uh, probably go up tonight. For those of you who listen to it on my site, it'll be on iTunes and all that tomorrow. I'm going to do something I rarely do, which is I'm going to put this one up fresh out of the oven. Uh, today's guest is uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, who is an addiction specialist, a medical doctor who um, has worked uh, with... Um, he, he ran a palliative care center. He's sort of famous for his work with um, junkies and and addicts in Vancouver. In the, um, for those of you who haven't been to Vancouver, it's it's an interesting city, a beautiful city, incredibly beautiful city actually. Um, but the, the sort of skid row section of Vancouver is pretty intense. It's a very concentrated um, sort of Dickinsonian um, spectrum of suffering and despair. It's pr- it's a pretty pretty intense scene. And um, Gabor Mate uh, has worked down there for years, um, needle exchange programs, and uh, trying to to bring some dignity and uh, and some common sense to the treatment of addicts. You'll hear his his views, which are simultaneously uh, completely commonsensical and yet strangely radical. Uh, that's that's the world we live in, you know. You, if you speak the truth, if you if you say something that is really common sense, uh, you'll be considered a radical. You'll be considered dangerous and strange, and and the rest of it. Uh, until enough of us say these things out loud, and then uh, maybe we'll we'll be able to shift reality in some way. I don't know. But uh, anyway, he, Gabor Mate is my guest. I just left his place an hour ago, uh, and I decided to – I was going to edit and uh, and post the podcast uh, this afternoon anyway. So I decided to just put his up while it's fresh and, um, and sort of as a, a goodbye to Vancouver because Cassie and I are leaving next week. And uh, this marks the end of our second summer in Vancouver and probably the last. Uh, you know, we came here thinking, hey, let's you know, let's think about getting Canadian residency. Canada is a great country, beautiful people, you know, a pretty cool government, not as afflicted by the uh, strange 
hang-ups that uh, afflict American government, especially, you know, right now it's like we 23 hours or something until the American government stops paying bills. And, you know, the, the, the default uh, situation that's going on in Washington is just sort of a symptom of, of a much larger emotional, spiritual default that's happening in American society. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, that's another issue, but yeah, we thought we'd come to Canada and, and we actually, a guy, uh, a member of parliament, a Canadian member of parliament read our book and wrote and said, oh, you guys should come live here. You, you know, you'd be so welcome. You're, you're both on the list of, um, fast track residency because you, your professions are on the list of desired professions, psychiatrist and psychologist. So uh, we thought, well, yeah, why not? Let's check it out. You know, we're, you know, we're ready for a change. We don't need to be in Spain. We don't really want to be in L.A., even though we'd like to have access to L.A. because I've got family there and, you know, there's some TV projects and media stuff that might be happening. Uh, so it sort of made sense. And uh, But we came here last summer just to check it out. We really liked it. Uh, went to L.A. for the winter and then uh, decided, let's go back to Vancouver and, uh, you know, we'll hire a lawyer and we'll get this residency thing going. Shouldn't be too much of a hassle. So we get up here this summer, see a lawyer, and the lawyer says, oh, last month the, the, they changed the list. And now neither one of you is on the list. No more psychiatrist, no more psychologist. So we're in the same boat as everyone else who wants to live in Canada. We'd have to get jobs, and, you know, after a year, you can apply for this or that, which is all, you know, very fair, but not really what we had in mind because we're looking at a five-year plan, so we don't want to spend, you know, two or three of those years just trying to get set up. So uh, anyway, goodbye, Canada. Love you. You've been very kind to us, and uh, we've spent lots of money here. It's an expensive city, Vancouver. So uh, I hope uh, some of that money will go to your health care system and your uh, other socially progressive policies uh, that support things like the work of Dr. Gabor Mate, uh, clean needle exchange, methadone, uh, harm reduction-based approach to drugs as opposed to penalization and uh, pathology. Patholog- what's that word? Pathologize, well, to pathologize the drugs, you know, to say that uh, addiction is a sickness or a sign of some moral failure as opposed to uh, a symptom of, um, of suffering, uh, an expression of suffering in a way to try to soothe suffering, which is a much more compassionate approach and uh, also, uh, I think, a far more accurate understanding of what's going on with addiction, whether it's addiction to drugs of some sort or to uh, masturbation or uh, video games or making money or looking at yourself in the fucking mirror. So that's what's going on in today's episode. Very interesting dude. Uh, went to his house, met his wife, and man, before I could even get the mic set up, we were half an hour into a great conversation. Unfortunately, we didn't record that, but uh, what we did record, I think you'll find very interesting. I certainly I certainly did. Um, okay, before we get into that, though, let me uh, do my shtick here. 
Uh, Feral Audio. Uh, you can hear this podcast at Feral Audio. It's part of the Feral Audio Collective, uh, which is very cool. It's uh, nobody makes money over there. It's sort of uh, people just getting together, pooling resources, and uh, you know, trying to bring interesting podcasts to the world. So they've got a whole bunch of probably two dozen at this point some very famous uh more famous than mine certainly like the duncan trussell family hour uh which is fantastic as you all know uh duncan's a good friend of mine i was on his podcast uh, last week told my most embarrassing story about um public defecation in india which is probably not as gross as it sounds but it's certainly as Humiliating as it sounds, you can hear that on the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. Uh, other Feral Audio podcasts are like um, the Dan Harmon Show, Harmon Town. Dan Harmon was the creator or is the creator of Community, a TV show I've never seen, but I hear is great. And a friend of mine actually works on, she, she paints stage sets for that show. She's been working on that, breathing fumes for that show for a few years. Now, he's a really funny, interesting guy. I met him at a party at Duncan's, actually. I had no idea who he was. And we had an animated conversation about prehistoric sexuality, which tends to happen when I go to parties. Um, okay, that's feralaudio.com. Uh, you can, of course, hear our, this podcast lots of other places. You can download it on iTunes if that's your preferred. If you've got an account at iTunes um, and you feel like it, you can always uh, leave a rating and a comment, which uh, is is great. Uh, when my ego starts to get a little depleted, I just go and read the comments on iTunes. For some, <laughs> for some reason, they're all positive. It's fantastic. I thank you. Thank you, everybody. You're great. Um, you know, I'm accustomed to comments being, you know, at least a third, like pathologically insane nastiness. Um, for some reason that hasn't hit yet. So knock on wood. Um, let's see, what else can I tell you? The Amazon affiliate link, you can listen to the podcast, uh, at my site, Chris Ryan, and there's all sorts of goodies there. There are photos of the people I'm talking to. There's some show notes. There's a little summary. Uh, you can stream it or download it from that site. Uh, and you can see my other stuff there. There's a bonobo. If you click on his balls, you can uh, that'll take you through to Amazon. And you buy stuff at Amazon, and we get a, a cut of that, uh, 2% or 3%. Goes to support the podcast. So if you're going to buy some big-ass shit at Amazon and you go through my bonobo balls at Chris Ryan PhD will get two or three percent of that big ass shit that you bought, which is great. I just bought speaking of big ass shit, I just bought a cargo box for the car through Amazon. It was the best price I could find anywhere. And they delivered it to my friend Tim's place in Seattle, drove down there yesterday. Tim and I put the ski poles or whatever they're called the ski rack on the car and then we mounted that and i drove it back up fantastic so if you were going to buy a cargo box for your car for 800 bucks or whatever they cost uh and you bought it through amazon after clicking through the bonobo balls on chris ryan phd i'd get two or three percent of that which is what 40 bucks or something you know that's that's not bad um no is that right I don't know. I'd get, you know, I'll do the math later. 
Uh, okay, what else? There's a donate page on the or donate uh, button you can click on if you just want to throw some money at us, which is always welcome. In fact, I'd like to thank Terry McLennan of Calgary, who did just that, uh, or maybe, I don't know if he did it through that or if he just did it through PayPal or whatever, but he sent some money uh, to support the podcast, which we really appreciate. And Red Pill Junkie. Uh, also threw some money our way. Um, actually, he, he specified that he was uh, supporting the podcast or throwing money at, at us because of that shit story I told on Duncan's podcast. So he's, he's apparently, he supports us, Duncan, and Daniele Bolelli. Um, and he loves, you know, the whole sort of Joe Rogan universe. But he says he doesn't, you know, send any money to Joe because Joe doesn't need it. And I agree. Joe's Joe's doing just fine. Uh, and I'm sure Joe would agree. So thanks. Thanks, Red, Red Pill Junkie. Okay, what else do we have? Thank you to Carsey Blanton, as always, for the amazing song, Smoke Alarm. Wonderful song. Uh, listen to the lyrics. As always, the lyrics are where it's at. The music's great, but her lyrics are fantastic. And you can download the song uh, from her site. She's got a tip jar, you know, leave what you can, take what you need. Very cool. Um, what else can I say? Now, uh, the, the T-shirts. You can order T-shirts at chrisryan.com. You'll see a store button. We've got, right now, we've got the uh, Sex of Dawn shirts. We're out of a couple sizes, but we've got most of them. Fantastic shirts designed by Levi Greenacres. You can see his stuff at levigreenacres.com. And you can look at other T-shirts at suredesigntshirts.com. Fantastic really great quality i mean with t-shirts i found that you either get thin shirts that fall apart or you get these heavy uh thick cotton uh you know it's a fruit of the loom kind of shirts which last a long time but they're they're pretty heavy and on a hot day they're pretty hot and yeah i don't know it's it's kind of Neither one quite works for me. Well, the Shore Design t-shirts, they've got some way of doing this where the shirts are both very thin material but strong. And it's cotton. They're 100% cotton. Duncan Trussell says it has something to do with Thai pubic hair. I don't know how that happens, but Duncan knows his shit, so I'm sure he's right. Anyway... Uh, Sure Design t-shirts are fantastic. They've got all kinds of funky designs. Go to their site. They've got Octopus and Buddha and the Tree of Life and all kinds of uh, very, very funky, cool stuff. And hoodies and dresses and, you know, teddies and wife beaters and uh, whatever you want. Um, And, in fact, we've got an order in now for uh, hoodies uh, and T-shirts. We're going to get some some hoodies with the Sex at Dawn design, uh, fantastic mandala design that Levi Greenacres did. And uh, then we're going to get some um, hoodies and T-shirts with another design, the tangentially speaking design, uh, specifically for the podcast. So those will be in there soon. And last but not least, Squarespace.com. Now, Square, if you go to my site, ChrisRyanPhD.com, you'll see an example of what you can do, what 
someone like me who really doesn't know shit about setting up websites can do with squarespace.com. Uh, I think last week in the Carl or the last episode, the Carl Hart episode, I talked about how I had hired someone to set up a site for me. And after a while, I realized like when you hire someone to set up the site for you, you're tied to them for life. You need every time you want to change something, you want to add a photo, you want to upload this, change that, whatever. You got to go through that person who did the design. Uh, I'm sure there, you know, there are ways around that. There, you know, whatever they set you up so you can do some stuff yourself. But if you want to make any kind of major change, you got to go through the designer, obviously. Um, and that that's problematic. What if they get hit by a bus? What if they get pregnant? What if they you know and decide not to work anymore? What if they, you know, whatever? What, what uh, lots of things can happen. So you're kind of vulnerable. With Squarespace, what's so cool is you set up the site yourself. Uh, you can mess around for 14 days. Last episode, I said 30 days. I was wrong. It's 14 days. You've got 14 days where they don't even ask you for your credit card. You just go in. You set up an account. You start messing around. You upload some photos. You put some text. You try out different templates. Just go squarespace.com and you'll see the templates are super cool. They're beautiful, really nice. So you just sort of go through the templates and say, okay, well, you know, I'm a photographer or I want to put my stuff up from traveling or I just want to write a blog or I want to sell some stuff or whatever. And they've got all different templates that uh, correspond to those different uses. And you just pick a template, start putting stuff in. And then here's the coolest thing about it. You've got content up there already, right? And you think, oh, you know, I've gone so far down this road. Now I don't know. I have to, you know, I can't turn back. You can just click on a different template and it automatically takes all that content that you've already uploaded and puts it into this new template. So you can see how your site will look using different templates. And then if you don't like it, you just click cancel and it goes right back to the way it was. So in other words, you can check out lots of different designs with your own content, your own photos, your own, whatever you're, you're uploading onto there. Uh, and you can, you can sort of look around and try different looks, try different designs, and then go back to whatever you want. Um, think about how amazing life would be if we could just change the template like that. You know, like I've got this whole site set up, but I could go in right now, if they upload a new template and I like it, I could go up right now and click, okay, check out that template. And it'll trans transfer everything over to that template. So, I mean, I was driving, driving down the road the other day. Cassie and I just did this long trip through the Canadian Rockies, so I had a lot of time to think. And I was driving, and I was thinking, wow, man, if you could... If you could just shift the template of life like that, you know, here I am, I'm 51 years old. If I could like just click a button, like what would my life look like if I'd gone to Oxford instead of fucking off and going to Alaska after I got my BA? 
you know, just click, boom, there you are. Oh, that's what would have happened if you were a professor, if you, you know, you, you went to Oxford and studied literature and got a PhD and then got a job teaching and, you know, married some graduate student, blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's what it would look. Oh, I'd have kids. Oh, I'd be living in this house in Princeton, New Jersey. Oh yeah. Okay. No, I don't think so. Click cancel. Boom. Back to where you are. Oh, wouldn't that be fucking cool, man? You know, oh, what would have happened if, you know, if that guy who, yeah, well, I was going to say, if that guy who shot at me had hit me, well, that, that wouldn't be that interesting, actually. Um, but anyway, before I get too far into this, you know, what if situation, if you decide to do, uh, to take a thing, take, you know, to do Squarespace, if you're going to set up a website, and hey, let's face it, everybody kind of needs a website these days. It's, Fucking cheap. It's eight bucks a month. That's the the entry level, you know, basic website. You pay eight bucks a month, plus they give you a free um, web registration. So, you know, you got the name of your website, whatever, they register it, and that's included in the price if you do a one year contract, right? So, eight times 12, whatever that is, 96 bucks you got. And it costs 10, 15 bucks uh, for the registration. So, you knock that off. And then, if you use, um, when you sign up, you put in tangent 10 which is my coupon code or whatever, they'll give you a, a discount. As well. I think it's 10% off on top of that. So you end up with a really cheap deal. And not only is it easy to set up the website, it's fun. And you'll see. Check it out. It's cool. Um, the other thing I, I got to say about Squarespace is if you're not, you know, if if you're like me and you're like, well, I'd like to have a web, website, but I don't want to waste a lot of time. I don't want to have to learn programming or, you know, whatever. They It's set up so you can do it. Believe me, it's easy. You can do it, right? It's it's easier than putting together and like a chair from Ikea, you know, or Ikea, I guess it's pronounced here. Um it's it's really easy. But if you run into problems, their customer service is amazing. They're all in New York. It's not, you know, India or someplace. They're in New York. They uh, get back to you quick. I mean, within minutes or hours. Rarely does it take a day to hear back from them. Um, and they've got a, a whole sort of knowledge uh, thing. There's a forum. There's So you can, like, put in your question and you'll find where it's been answered before and all that. But if you get to the point where you're like, no, it's not there. It's not here. I don't know how to do this. What's going on. You just click contact us, send us an email, open a case, boom, they're back to you right away. So it's, uh, all in all, it's pretty cool. Honestly, if this podcast gets big enough that I start getting lots of sponsors and, you know, like there are people who are offering me money to talk about their product, but I've never used it and I don't give a shit about it. I don't know what I'll do, but, uh, we're not there yet. I use it, love it. And frankly, uh, I would talk this way about it, even if they weren't offering me a little bit of money to do so. So anyway, squarespace.com. Very cool. Anything else I need to talk about? I don't think so. I've been going on for a long time. Uh, so we'll get to the the interview, the conversation with Gabro Mate. But before I do, let me just say the fact that I'm putting this up right away uh, is kind of frustrating. I'm doing it, why not, for a change. But I've got 
like a dozen fantastic podcasts in the can. I mean, when I say fantastic, I'm not kidding. I'm talking about uh, Rod Gorney, who's a, uh, I think he's 84 years old, very interesting guy, psychiatrist, Jungian, uh, Jungian or Freudian analyst, I don't remember. Um, Very interesting situation, family. His stepfather wrote Somewhere Over the Rainbow and Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? And just a fascinating guy. Jamie Ian Swiss, one of the most famous close-up magicians in the world, uh, profiled in The New Yorker. Uh, Thaddeus Russell, uh, sort of a renegade historian based in L.A., really interesting guy. Cindy Gallup, uh, Make Love Not Porn. Uh, you can check her out her site. Fantastic, interesting woman. Frank Delaney, uh, Irish author, BBC personality. Um, just, I mean, fantastic, interesting people. Todd Strauss-Schulson, who, who directed, a film, movie director who directed the the last Harold and Kumar movie, and he's sort of like a hot property in Hollywood talking about, uh, you know, being a film director. He's young, too. He's like 30 or something, 32, something like that. Um, You know, how he got into that, what it's like. uh, Very interesting um, people. Betty Dotson, who's been teaching women to have orgasms since the late 60s. Uh, Marissa. Uh, it was a fantastic interview. Very interesting person. Um, she's a, a transsexual. Oh, well, not transsexual. She's a uh, what's the word? Um, transvestite. Um, who I I know who lives in New York. Um, so speaking with her about what that's like, and you know, coming to the awareness of of that aspect of her personality and how how people respond and just very open uh, interesting uh woman um who uh you know it's 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 beautiful to talk to people like that who who are in these very potentially very difficult situations and and there's like whew, she's just open and honest and and uh, doesn't see herself as a victim or, or, you know, there's no sort of bitterness or anger. It's a wonderful conversation. So anyway, there's a lot of good podcasts there. I'm sort of doling them out every couple of weeks because uh, there's, I'm going to be traveling a lot for the next few months. And I probably won't have the chance to record a lot, so I want to keep it steady. But, man, I wish I could just, like, upload them all right now because they're all fantastic. So I hope you'll keep listening. Uh, even though I've been droning on now for 25 minutes. Sorry about that. Let's get to the podcast. Thanks for listening. It used to seem to me that my life ran on too fast And I had to take it slowly just to make the good parts last When you're born to run It's so hard to just slow down So don't be surprised to see me In the brighter part of town And I'll be back in the high life again All the doors I closed one time Will open up again Feral Audio
All right. I am in uh, the beautiful, comfortable living room of Dr. Gabor Mate. Did I get the accents in the right places Gabor there? Gabor Mate. Yeah, you did. You've been very close. Yeah. Gabor Mate. Mate. Ah, because it's got the accent mark on the E. I know, but in Hungarian, which is its origin, there's been an accent mark on the A uh, uh, as well. It's just that yeah, I, did, I couldn't bother. I mean, <laughs> who'd, underst- who'd understand it? You know? All right, that's Mate. Yeah. Mate, okay. Anyway, it's close. Like the, the Argentinian uh, tea. Brew, yeah. Yeah, brew, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah good. Um, thank you for making the time to do this and, and having me over. This is, this is fantastic. Um, you're, I, I saw you most recently on, uh, what is it called, The House I Live In? The film on addiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic uh, film. And in fact, you you said something uh, I, I mentioned. See, this is the problem with, with podcasting, with interesting people. We, ended, we had just had a 15 or 20 minute conversation with your wife. But it would have been great to get, uh, get on, on, get recorded. I almost said on tape. That yeah. dates me, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I was watching that film, and there was something you said, and I stopped and went back and wrote it down, and it's in my notes for this book I just mentioned that I'm working on. You said, uh, I'm paraphr- paraphrasing, but you said something like, um, the question is not, when people are in pain, they, not, the question is not why the addiction, but why the pain. Why the pain? Because yeah. they have to soothe the pain, and yeah. the addiction is just a way of soothing the pain. That's right. Um, yeah, that was very beautifully put. And you know, I know it's an obvious point for someone like you, but I think for well, I'm sorry, interrupt. It's not an obvious point for someone like me because <clears throat> amongst a thousand addiction doctors, you might find three or four who will point that out to you, and the and the other nine hundred ninety-five or more will think that they're dealing with some genetic disease or right. so, or some choice or some uh, brain disease, but without looking at the antecedents of that in a person's individual life and, and, and multi-generational history. So the, the, the idea that addictions actually are not the problem, but they're an individual's attempt to solve a problem, that's not so apparent to most uh, addiction physicians. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Someone like you, it yeah. is. Someone like yeah. me, it is. Yeah. But I, I think you're right. Most uh, most physicians, most therapists coming at it, especially with the disease model, which yeah. which you raise. So you, I interviewed Stanton Peel recently, yeah. who's an outspoken opponent of the disease model, as I'm sure you know. Uh, and he had very nice things to say about you and your work, by the way. Um, how, what's your stand on the disease model? I'm glad to hear that because he also wrote a blog called The Seductive but Dangerous Appeal of Gabor Mate. <laughs> <laughs> so I, always knew, I always knew I was seductive. I didn't know I was dangerous. <laughs> but thanks to Stanton, I know that I'm dangerous too. Yeah. So I don't, I'm, 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 and I still don't quite get what his, his point was. And I don't think he wrote the blog. I think he wrote it with somebody else. But, but the point was that he didn't think that trauma was that... Um, Significant that, that that was overstating the importance of trauma in addiction. Right. You could read what he wrote. I didn't bother to respond to it. Right. But anyway, I'm glad to hear that he appreciates my work. Um, well, your question is? was <laughs> uh, Your stance on the disease model of addiction. Well, there's truth in it. But, but the danger of something that has truth in it is that we mistake it for the truth. So it's dangerous and seductive. Uh, well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> the, the dangerous is that of appeal, yeah. Because uh, the, the addicted brain is a diseased brain. Right. And in the sense that um, there's pathological changes in it. You can show, show, show that on brain scans and assays of neurotransmitters and, and receptors and so on. 
And the more people are engaged in addictive behaviors, particularly with substances, the more damaged the brain can become. So it's appropriate to speak of a disease. And also, the disease model at least ought to give us pause when it comes to blaming people for their behaviors. Because if somebody's heart is diseased and isn't pumping oxygen as efficiently, and that person develops blueness of the fingers, we're not going to blame the person. We're going to say, that that person got a diseased heart. Well, the brain motivates and generates behaviors. So if we understand that this is a diseased brain, then we're not going to blame that person for the symptom that the behavior represents. So there's some validity to it. The problem is that the, the disease model does not ask the question, what causes the disease? And the assumption is that it's uh, genetics. So right. the American Society of Addiction Medicine defines addiction as a primary brain disease. Now, primary means that it just arises of its own or perhaps is genetically programmed. Not true. Uh, what actually happens is, and this is far more complicated than most people like to accept, but that the human brain develops an interaction with the environment, and when the environment does not need, does not meet that brain's need for the optimal conditions, that brain does not develop optimally or properly, and the biochemistry, the circuitry, the receptor activity, the connectivity of important brain centers and brain systems will be impaired. And that's what sets up the template for addiction. And that impairment, if you look at its environmental causes, is rooted in the nature of the child's relationship with the adult world. And the more trauma is introduced into that relationship, the more likely it is that that kid will become addicted and that his brain will be receptive to the addictive substances and behaviors. So yes, there's a disease aspect to it, but disease itself is not primary. Uh, and just to reduce it to a disease, by the way, is oversimplifying because it has other aspects to it that are not disease-based. They're based on the fact that people who are traumatized or hurt have a lot of emotional pain. And when they have pain, they want to soothe that pain. And so that's why I ask, not by the addiction, but by the pain. Right. And from that perspective, the addiction is not the primary problem. The addiction is actually the person's attempt to solve a problem. Right. And if you ask most people, anybody who've got addictive behaviors, whether it's shopping or, 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 or pornography for that matter, or, or, or gambling, or cocaine, or crystal meth, or whatever it is, heroin, what does it do for you? Making money is an addiction in our society. For sure. Yeah. yeah, and I would argue that there's a broad range of addictions in our society yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that, that are not substance-based, but which employ the same brain circuits and right. the same emotional dynamics right. and are designed to soothe the same pain as the drug addiction is. So then from an evolutionary perspective, by the way, I want to get back to your, your points about how the, the environment affects the developing brain. I think that's, that stuff's fascinating on many different levels. Um, but from an evolutionary perspective, the story you're telling about how the brain interacts with environment, the, the insufficiencies of the environment or the trauma uh, introduced by the environment. And, and you make the very good point that trauma is both um, the presence of a traumatic event and the absence of uh, a sort of 
normal, healthy uh, event or influence in someone's life. So a distant parent who never beats you can still be traumatic in a way. Exactly. And uh, um, there's a Harvard article in the journal Pediatrics last year put it that 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 brain development depends on what they call the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships. Right. So that so that when the parents are too stressed, right, too emotionally absent, uh, too distracted, um, too much caught up with all kinds of economic concerns, uh, too blocked in their own emotional expression, mm-hmm. haven't dealt with their own childhood trauma, whatever it is, if the if the parents are not able to be engaged in that mutually responsive relationship with the child, that child's brain will suffer. Right, right. And even though they never lifted a finger to right. hurt the child, and exactly. even though they love the child. Right. So, now, what I'm thinking in this sort of grand evolutionary way is, yeah. uh, you, just as a warlike society creates frustrations that then m- model or, or mold young men into warriors... Is it possible that our society is creating, is is introducing these traumas into us as a way of perpetuating itself, as a way of making us workers, as a way of making us hungry uh, to run on the wheel, to keep the society running, to, to go to work every day, to make more money, to get the status, to, you know what I mean? It, it creates itches in us that we can never really scratch, but that perpetuates the society itself, almost as if we were we were parts of a larger organism. Well, um, this is where it's so tempting to come up with conspiracy theories. Yeah. Because if I had to design a society which um, would... Uh, bring up people who have to soothe their pain and fill their emptiness with all kinds of meaningless activities and meaningless goods. Right. That that create the, money somehow for that, someone. That, that, that would then generate profit for yeah, somebody. Yeah. Uh, then I would generate exactly this society. <laughs> it's, yeah. And, yeah. And, and if I was some corporate uh, hotshot who had to create the dynamics that would get many, many people spending much of their life either producing or consuming goods that are completely irrelevant to human needs, I'd come up with what we've got right now. Now, there's no conspiracy. Not that there aren't conspiracies, as we know. Right. As we know, the corporations know very well how to conspire yeah. to to sell us stuff we don't need to make us eat food that is bad for us and all that. So I'm not dismissing conspiracies, but but overall, there's no social conspiracy. This is just how the society works. But how it works is that it um, because it's a materialistic society. Uh, what does that mean? It means that the control, possession, and consumption of material goods is the highest value. Right. And so people are valued to the extent that they can produce or consume. Or possess. Yeah. That's it. That's how we value human beings. And the successful ones are the ones that can control and, uh, and possess the most. Yeah. And, and then once people lose their capacity to produce, or if they don't have it in the first place, or to consume, they're considered useless. And they're, they're outside, the, uh, outside the, the pale, really. Yeah. 
So, so that means that people's actual needs to be accepted for who they are and, 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 to, ex, and to express who they are as human beings, unrelated to material uh, uh, considerations, is completely frustrated. And that means there's a terrible itch there because we all want to be accepted. We all want to be um, contributed to and we all want to contribute. Right. Those needs, for the most part, are frustrated by the society. And then we compensate for that. And how do you compensate? By working more, by buying more, by possessing more, uh, by X number of ways. But, right. but again, we become the perfect members of a society that's geared to, to maximize profit. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it does work that way uh, without, without an overall conspiring intelligence. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And this is an idea I'm trying to tease out in this book I told you I'm working yeah. on. Is the, you know, this whole, f- we've got this Frankenstein uh, mythos in our yeah. society that we're going to create some monster that's going to get out of control and so on. Uh, you know, and a lot of people are locating that in computers and robots. Like, oh my God, we're going to create a robot. Yeah. It's it's happened. It happened a long time ago. The corporation yeah. is such a monster, and yeah. we even give it, you know, in the United States, you know, the rights of citizenship. Yeah. Um, and which, by the way, happened in the 19th century. That's not that recent. No, the corporation, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in terms of their, their their rights as persons, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I forget the the act. There was a yeah. yeah I, I forget too, but it yeah. was in the 19th century. Something. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I was thinking recently of you know Mitt Romney saying you know corporations are people, my friend. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, societies. There, I agree with you. There's not a conspiracy, but I think that. Y- institutions are organic beings and they they have their own interests they have their own they function in a different ecology they you know they're 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 in their own realm and in that realm uh human happiness is irrelevant profits relevant not to mention there's all the recent brain uh, uh brain research that shows that people at the top have less empathy right yeah uh, yeah they, they they tend to be more paranoid um, uh, more fear-based. I'm. I'm in this book. I'm introducing uh, a new concept that I hope will make its way into the DSM six yeah. with RAS, rich asshole syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is that uh, it it functions. It's a chicken egg situation where it's not only that assholes tend to get rich because of their psychopathic uh, qualities, but also that being rich sort of forces you to be an asshole. In the sense that it forces you to create psychological uh, compensations and defense mechanisms to deal with the fact that you are in a position to help people that you're not going to help. My brother is uh, one of my brothers is a businessman. He's not a large scale businessman, but he's got a successful, moderate sized business here in BC. And he says that. He doesn't believe the kind of people he has to deal with every day. And, and, that, and that, for example, if he really wanted to be competitive, more competitive, he'd have to actually pay his workers less. Right. And, of course. And, and, yeah. and, and, and let go of all kinds of ethical considerations. Yeah, because and, he would have to subsume himself to that, the ethos of the corporation. Yeah. So I said, well, look, how would you rather live, this way or that way? He says, well, I'd rather live the, the way I'm living. But, yeah. but it also means that um, he's constantly in a world where he's struggling to maintain his humanity. Yeah. And he's conscious of that. And and there are some people in business, I'm sure, 
and I've met them who are like that, but that's not what we see out there. Yeah, that's not the dominant ethic. Yeah, and and you know when I talk about this, and I don't at all mean to indict the individuals no. because I mean I first experienced it myself. I, I I'm from a middle class family, and um, yeah, but I I got a job in New York working in the Diamond District, completely oh, yeah. out of a strange series of coincidences. I spent a few years in the Diamond District working there. I'm not Jewish. I was the only non-Jew on the block. Not Israeli. Not Israeli. <laughs> not Hasidic. You know, but people talked to me in Yiddish because they thought I was Jewish. So they yeah. just assumed. You know, yeah. he, this guy's here all the time. Yeah. Um, and I actually lived on 47th Street. I was, I think, the only person who ever lived there. But that's another story. But so I was surrounded by all this extreme wealth there for a few years. And I quit that job and flew to India and spent uh, a couple years traveling in Asia. And uh, being in India, I realized I was a multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. My ticket cost more than, you know, most of the people I was meeting would earn in a lifetime, you know. And so wealth, poverty, these things are all relative. They're all, you know, very slippery concepts. But I was in a position to, you know, take the money I would have spent for a hotel room for a week and give it to someone who, you know, I could save a life with that money. And I didn't do it. I couldn't do it because there are too many people, whatever. The logistics of it were impossible. And but. I no, learned. No, no, you could have done it. I could have done it. Yeah, you, you just didn't do it. I didn't do it. Uh, just, just, just as I uh, am very aware of poverty and starvation in the world, and uh, the suffering of the people of Gaza, for example, or any number of places in the world, and I donate some money. But do I donate any amount that in any way causes me any kind of discomfort? Right. You know, and uh, yeah, I don't. We learn to step over homeless people in the street, yeah. you know, yeah. and to some extent, these things, these this scarring, emotional scarring, uh, scar tissue that we build up is necessary to function yeah. in the world as it is. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's. Uh, no, that's a story. It's, 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 it's necessary if we want to function the way we're functioning. I mean, yeah. look, I'm, I'm, I'm not placing myself in any moral position to criticize anybody else. All I'm saying is I cannot tell myself that it's necessary. It's not necessary for me to own all the CDs that I have on my walls here. Mm. It's not necessary for me to have all the books that I have on my shelves that I'll ne- many of them I'll never get to read. It's not necessary for me to have two cars. None of that is necessary. And yeah. and, 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 and sometimes I wonder, and, and I know every, every once in a while you read about somebody who really does live minimally, and they're happier people. Sure. They're happiness. So I'm just not buying into the necessary part. Well, okay. It, it, but it's, it's still an attachment that we have. I, I would but argue. it is necessary on some level to uh, be able to think about things other than the suffering of others. I mean, yeah. you, you got to get on with your life. If You can't walk down the street and, uh, you know, uh, help everybody you see who needs help. You'll never get to the end of the street. Actually. When it comes to help, no, I can't change their lives. That's totally true. But, um, you know, certainly here in Vancouver, sometimes I walk by these people, and then I, half a block later I walk back. Yeah. I say, what am I doing? I can't give a dollar. Right. I can't give two bucks. You know, and, and I don't care what their circumstances are and whether they're going to use it for cocaine or alcohol. It's not really my concern. Right. They still need to eat. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and and 
So there's a kind of a, I'm saying that in addition to any practical needs, which are genuine, there's also a, just an unwillingness and a kind of a holding on and a kind of tightness that I experience in myself. And I think yeah. this society actually encourages that kind of tightness. It makes it, well, and that's sort of what I'm trying to say is that it almost makes it necessary. Yeah. Okay, so um, just to to get sort of back to a personal level, I know your work has not only been with addiction, although that's what you're most well-known for at this point probably, but you've also written uh, books about attention deficit disorder. What What's your take on, on that? Well, um, so as a medical doctor, I've worked in many different areas, uh, and uh, I became interested in attention deficit disorder when I myself was diagnosed with it in my early 50s. In your early 50s, really? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh. Uh, I was um, the coordinator of the palliative care unit here at Vancouver Hospital, uh-huh. working with terminally ill people. By the way, do you have a medical specialty? or I'm, a, I'm an MD, and I'm, I was, I'm a general practitioner. General practitioner. Uh, okay. And I worked in, so I finally practiced, delivered babies, looked after dying people. I was the coordinator, sort of director of the palliative care unit Yeah, that's for seven incredible. years. Incredible. Um, then I went to work with drug addicts in, in, in a heavily addicted area of Vancouver for 12 years. Um, I have a great interest in mind-body health, the relationship between stress and, and health, and the, the relationship between emotions and physiological illness. Um, so, I mean, I've... And partly that's because, you know what, it comes down to one thing and one thing only. When people have the right environment, they'll stay healthy. And when the environment is lacking their development will be distorted and so will their health. And that's true whether you're talking about cancer, whether you're talking about rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, or ADD. Now, my take on ADD was that, um, again, it's considered to be a genetic disease by most people who deal with it. Well, it's A, not a disease, and B, it's not genetic. Right. Um, The... the, the, the difficulty of paying attention, the tuning out, the absent-mindedness is not a disease. It's actually a defense mechanism. Against what? Overwhelming stress. Uh-huh. Uh, if I were to stress you right now, your natural and healthy response would be to fight back, right. to escape, uh, or to seek help. But what if I was in a position where, what if you were in a position where you couldn't do any of that? Yeah. Then how would your brain deal with the overwhelming stress or whatever I was imposing on you? One way would be to tune out, right, and to, and so that uh, people, typically, when they're helpless, they will just tune out, and that's just dissociative a, state. A dissociative state. That's yeah. just a natural given brain defense necessary in some cases. If you have a severe wound, but collapsing means that the enemy will kill you, you better tune out the pain, right, and 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 and, and keep running, and you know, and, and now if there was help available, you wouldn't have to tune out. You just collapse with the pain, right. Now. That's the first point. The second point is that what I didn't know when I had that insight, but which I found out almost by accident, and, and, and this is the irony of it, is that this is still not taught in the medical schools, is the stuff we were talking about earlier about the human brain developing under the impact of the environment. So, so yeah. that which circuits develop and which do not has to do with what happens in utero and what happens particularly in the first few years of life. So there are times in the first few years of life when every second... There are millions of connections being laid down. But what if a kid is stressed during that time? Mm-hmm. Like I was as a Jewish infant under Nazi occupation in Budapest, Hungary, right. in 1944. And my mother was a terrified, grief-stricken woman whose parents had been killed in Auschwitz. 
and whose husband was away in forced labor, and she didn't know if he was dead or alive, and she didn't know if her and I would be dead or alive. What was your state of mind? Yeah. And therefore, what was my state of mind? I was under constant stress. How does an infant deal with it? Escape, fight back, seek help? No, tunes it out. Tunes it out when? When the brain is developing. That tuning up becomes programmed into the brain. Mm-hmm. And... And the chemistry of the brain, like when we treat ADD with dextrodrine or Ritalin or Concerta, what we're doing is we're increasing the level of a chemical in the brain called dopamine. Now, dopamine is a motivation attention chemical. Incidentally, cocaine and nicotine and caffeine, they all raise the same chemical in the brain, dopamine, yeah. which tells us a lot about self-medication and addictions. But the point is that... When, when, when young infants are stressed or absent from their mothers or their mothers are stressed, their dopamine circuits don't develop. So ADD then is not a disease that you're born with. It's actually a response to the environment. And that means that simply to consider it as a disease and say, here's a pill, a pill you know, rather than recognizing what we have here is suboptimal development. And the question is, how do you promote development in an older child or an adult? Not just how do you deal with the symptoms, but how do you promote development? As that was the subject of my first book, which in the States is called Scattered, and in Canada it's called Scattered Minds. Mm. Um, that's a whole other interesting question as to why the American publisher cut, <laughs> cut the word minds from the title. <laughs> yeah. Then the same publisher yeah, published another book called Scattered Minds on the same subject. I mean, it was, oh, really? Just, not, well, maybe that's why they did it. No, like, they didn't. They didn't know that was, oh, that years was, later. That was eight years later. Uh, they decided maybe it's a good title after all. Yeah. You know? and Publishing, in, man. We could, we could tell stories. I, I, know, I know we could tell oh stories. In, in any case, so ADD, in other words, is a, is a response, um, a, a dissociative response to the environment when there's stress. Now, stress does not have to be Second World War and genocide. Yeah. It can be just like in my own marriage, a lot of stress between wife and husband. Right. And, right. and uh, economic stress. Uh, well, in our case, it wasn't economic stress. That was a doctor, middle class. No, no, I'm know. not saying yeah, your but, case. But, but, there are many sources of stress. Many sources yeah. of stress. Yeah. And, it, and, and part of the stress could be relational between us amongst the, 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 the married couple. Yeah. It could be economic, whatever it is. Uh, stress means stressed parents don't love their kids any less. But they're sure. not as able to be attuned to their kids. Right. They're not as responsive to their kids. Not because they don't want to be. They can't be. And, you know, getting back to, to something we were talking about earlier, the nuclear family yeah. and this sort of society-wide right. assumption that the nuclear family is a natural uh, sort of eternal structure and human organization. Uh, parents are stressed out dealing with kids because, I would argue, because we are not a species – designed for one or two adults to raise kids. No, it was never like that. It was never like that. The the, the nuclear family is a historical aberration, you might say. Right. Uh, Very recent. And Uh, even in the best nuclear families where the parents aren't stressed and they are attentive and so on, kids aren't meant to be raised by one or two adults. They're meant to be raised by lots of adults. No, but, but at least if the parents are attentive and emotionally present, they can do a lot. But Sure, sure. But the point is that Ideally, parents need the support of the village. It right. takes a village, you know, the extended yeah. family, the, yeah. the, the neighborhood, the, you know, the clan, right. the tribe. And lots of other kids. Lots of, well, you know, so kids run around together. Under the supervision of adults. Lots of adults. To some extent. The primary relationship is with adults. So if you look at tribal cultures, the kids grow up under the gaze of the adults. I don't know if you saw the movie Babies, a documentary. Oh, lovely film, yeah. Okay, well, you know. 
infants yeah. followed from birth to one year of age in yeah. Japan, in San Francisco, in Mongolia, and in Africa. And at the end of the film now, yeah. if you recall, which kid looks the most confident? And the, the African kid. By the, far. <laughs> and what distinguishes the first year of that kid's life? Yeah. The constant presence constant. of the parents. And of physical the mother, contact. Physical contact. Yeah. Lots of adults around. Yeah. Other kids, but in a communal context. Yeah. And that kid is just grounded. I mean, I envy that one-year-old. When yeah. I saw that film, yeah. and so that's what it meant to be a human being. Now, when you deprive people of that kind of support, that adds the, to the parental stress. Yeah. And then when you have a society where both parents have to work now, uh, also sorry to interrupt you, but also yeah. in that film, one of the things that was striking yeah. was look at the stress level of the parents. Yeah, right. The Africans were just laughing, laughing and sitting smiling, in the dirt and dancing, like having a know. good time, and, yeah. and they were not yeah. they were not wealthy. Oh, far from it. You know, well, it depends how you measure exactly, it, of course. By, but by in terms of leisure time and quality of life and social interactions. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. That's, what the, that's what the kid needs, and that's what the parents need. So the reason we're seeing so much more ADD now in this society, where, where there's millions of American kids being medicated for it, is not because of some genetic explosion, which is totally implausible, right. but because the conditions have become so stressed uh, and that parental conditions have become so difficult that kids are dissociating as a way of dealing with their environment. Isn't it also, I, I agree with you, by the way, on this environment yeah. and the, the developmental environment, yeah. but isn't it also a response to the stultifying, ridiculously boring environment of most schools? That, I mean, that, that will cause attention problems and boredom problems. It will not cause ADD. Okay. Well, ADD. Okay, but ADD is a, a name we throw at know, kids who aren't paying attention know, in class. I know, right? and, and so that the, the 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 problem with ADD is it doesn't you know as, as as a concept it doesn't explain anything. It just describes something exactly. So yeah. It describes a certain set of traits or behaviors, but but it doesn't ask the question what is underlying that. Right. That, no. So so underlying that set of behavior. Let's say a kid kid doesn't pay attention in school. Well, it could be that they learn to dissociate early because of stress in a family. Could be that they're gifted and that they're bored in that stultifying environment. It could be their teacher sucks. Could be that their teacher is uh, is, is is just non-vital and non-exciting and non-connected. Right. It could be that their emotional relationship has transferred to the peer group to such an extent that they don't pay attention to what adults say. They much rather pay attention to what the peers are doing. Hmm. There could be any number of dynamics. So just because a kid is paying attention does not explain anything about that kid. So amongst a subset of those kids, there'll be a subset that I would say, amongst that set of kids who are not paying attention at school, there'll be a subset who I'll say will have genuine ADD in the sense that their brains are tuned mm-hmm. to dissociate and there's probably a dopamine lack. Right. And then the question then is, what do you do with those kids? And what do you do with any kid for that matter? Well, the solution to no matter what the source of the problem is, is to create environments that are vital, create environments where kids are connected to adults, nurturing adults, so they can feel secure in themselves, and environments that meet kids' needs. Now, it's totally unnatural for a kid to sit in the desk yeah. for six, seven, or eight hours a day right. and, and pay attention to a blackboard. I mean, who, who, yeah. I mean, it's got nothing to do with human needs. What that has to do with is the conversation we had earlier about the needs of the society. Right. Because if I had to design a, society, a school system that will turn out people that don't know how to think for themselves, that follow authority, that, 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 that swallow meaningless facts and engage in meaningless activities so that they can go to work in, in factories and right. jobs that don't reflect who they are, yeah. then I would design the school system we have right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's an internal logic to it all that's yeah. pretty frightening. Have you ever heard of um, James Prescott's work on uh, violence? And yeah, yes, very, yeah, very I, interesting. I, I've been in touch with him to some extent. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. He wrote the, uh, that paper was from the early '70s, I yeah. think. The, the uh, yeah. meta-analysis for listeners who don't know what we're talking about. Um, we reference it in Sex at Dawn as well. James Prescott wanted to see if there was a relationship between, uh, on the one hand, the, the things we're talking about here, the the amount of uh, physical contact between infants and their yeah. mothers, and violence. Uh, breastfeeding, I think he looked yeah. at, and also expression of adolescent sexual sexuality in mm-hmm. societies, tolerance for expression mm-hmm. of society, and on the other side, violence. He wanted to see if there was a relationship mm-hmm. between these things. Mm-hmm. And I think he looked at... That he looked at all the societies in the the ethnographic database that had all these factors. I think there were 27 societies, and in 26 of them, he found a very strong uh, relationship that the less breastfeeding and physical contact and, and tolerance for adolescent sexuality there is in a society, the more violence there is in that society, both within the society and between that society and neighboring yeah. Uh, groups warfare yeah. so yeah there there is this sort of organic uh, momentum i think that societies pick up th- where they replicate well their qualities well um my friend the psychologist gordon Newfeld, with whom we wrote a book called hold on to your kids which is about the importance of the village and adult relationships to child development um, and, and and the loss of all that in a society that promotes peer contacts as opposed mm-hmm. to adult contacts mm-hmm. um he says that frustration is the engine of aggression. Yeah, yeah, and that, and, that's and, a good. And, and and that when people are frustrated, they'll be aggressive. And you know what happens when I get frustrated? I kick the car, it would tire, or I yell, yell at, the at cat, your kid. Yell at the kid, yeah. or the cat. You know, so yeah. so aggression is the result, is the fruit of frustration. When people's needs are frustrated, there's going to be more and more aggression. Yeah. And so when you write, look at the rise of bullying and all that. It's just, you know, we, we always look upon these things as the problem. Bullying is the problem. The, the answer is zero tolerance. No, bullying is not the problem. Bullying is the, is the result of the fact that kids are disconnected and right. they're frustrated. I mean, isn't that, isn't that sort of the underlying theme of, of your work and, and so much of what's really being said that's important these days is that we are treating symptoms. Everywhere we look, we're treating symptoms in the Absolutely. criminal justice system and the war on drugs and so many well, things. We're not even treating them. We're reacting to we're, them. We're reacting to them. Yeah, yeah. we're punishing them we're or, punishing, or yeah. whatever we're doing. Yeah, We're punishing But we're not – I mean you the know, whole you – know, there's, there's a psychiatrist, Bessel van der Kolk, who's a world expert on trauma. Professor of psychiatry at Boston University. He says that virtually every single in- inmate of the criminal justice system were traumatized children. Yeah, and that's, so we're punishing people for having been traumatized, basically. But you know what you're saying is true in a broader sense too. I would argue, and I do argue in one of my books, when the body says no, that cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, ALS, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, colitis, Crohn's disease, chronic fatigue, chronic asthma, these are all symptoms. In other words, they're diseases in themselves, but they're not discrete, they're not accidental, they're not um, unexplainable. They have to do with what happened to people's lives and how they've had to compensate for early childhood loss. So So that cancer typically happens in people who emotionally repress themselves, particularly their anger, because they had to do that to survive the parental environment. And then that becomes a coping style. But given that 
you know, no, and again, you know, all these things that nobody breathes a word about in medical schools, but which scientifically aren't even controversial, that, that, that the mind and the body are inseparable, mm. that what happens emotionally, that, that the emotional system, the immune system, the nervous system, and the hormonal apparatus, the cardiovascular system, the intestinal apparatus, these are not separable. Yeah. It's, it's one yeah. it's one system yeah. so when you're suppressing one thing you're affecting the other parts of the yeah. system as well so when people are emotionally repressed they're actually repressing their immune system yeah so so then people that are emotionally repressed therefore are more likely to either develop some disease which is that of immune suppression such as cancer because their immune system can select out and destroy the occasional malignant cell that arises or the immune system actually turns against the body itself, right. then you get autoimmune, autoimmune disease, like yeah. rheumatoid arthritis, where you make antibodies against yourself. Yeah. And, so, and, and that's so clearly related to what happened to people in childhood, to what happened to their brain development, to the kind of emotional patterns and self-concept they developed as a result of those early years. And so that by the time you look at the cancer, or you look at the colitis, or any one of these other diseases, they're symptoms of a lifetime. Now, they have to be dealt with, but they have to be dealt with more than just with physical modalities. Yeah. You know? And I think it even goes goes further than that. I'm sure you're aware of the recent uh, research in epigenetics that shows that yeah. a parent or even, I believe, a grandparent's right. stress levels are reflected in. Physiologically. Yeah. In yeah. a child and not genetically. Right. Yeah, I know. And, yeah. and so that, 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 when you look at the science of psychoneuroimmunology, psychoneuroimmunology, which studies the relationships between the psyche. I, I, the, I spoke with Robert Ader at okay. a conference years ago. I couldn't believe I was on the same stage with him. Huh. He, he's, with people who don't know, he, he sort of, his research started the, the field of psychoneuroimmunology. Right. He right. was, he, now let me see if I can remember. It was one of those great serendipitous discoveries where he he was working with rats um and he gave them you might know this research better than i did he he was giving them um immunosuppressants mixed in with um uh, what's the artificial sweetener uh uh, whatever it is saccharin Saccharin. yeah exactly with saccharin and so the he sort of you know classically conditioned the rats uh, to to have their immune systems drop when paired with saccharin. Then he would just give them the saccharin. Then he just gave them saccharin. Yeah, and, that study, yeah. yeah, and so he showed that that was the first study that really showed that your your mental state could affect your immune system. And and then well, there was something. No, he wasn't the first one to show that. There was a, there was a Hungarian uh, Canadian physician called Hans Selye, S E L Y E, who actually coined the word stress. Oh really? He's the one. Yeah, oh yeah. He was. He was. He also. He almost won the Nobel Prize. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Ader should have won the Nobel Prize. Right. I mean, somebody. So, so Salia began his work in the 30s. He and and uh, he. Uh, his father was a Hungarian army officer. His mother was Austrian. Uh-huh. So Hungarian name is Janos Salia, but he's better known as Hans Salia, S E L Y E. And he's the one that showed in the laboratory that when you stress rats, it'll cause. Um, uh, hypertrophy of the adrenal glands. Now, was he the one where the rats escaped from the cage and he was chasing them around and then he noticed the rats that had escaped had on autopsy had different brain structure than the... Well, it, I, I don't know if he was the one. I don't know about that one, but he's certainly the one who showed that uh, when you stress rats, I think their, their immune systems will be suppressed, their adrenal glands will be uh, enlarged right. because of overuse and they have ulcers in their stomachs. 
I, I think I, I was mixing yeah. up Ader with him, and that was the serendipitous well, aspect. Well, Ader was the one with the saccharin. Right. But yeah. the, the rats escaped from the cage, okay. and whoever it was was chasing okay. the rats around, and for weeks he couldn't find the rats. Okay. And then he found them and put them back into the research, but okay. they were numbered or whatever. And then on, you know, when they did the autopsies at the end, he noticed that mm. there was a difference between the, the brain structures of the rats who had escaped okay. and were stressed yeah, yeah. and the rats who hadn't, you I know, see. although they were stressed too in different ways probably. Yeah. Which brings us to Rat Park, a yeah. fantastic research that was done here in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, Which has to do with addiction and, uh, yeah. again... Um, An environment. You know, rats getting uh, differential environments, um, more room to play, more companionship, more interesting uh, environment, uh, and so on. And, and, and these rats, um, contrary to the belief that drugs in themselves are addictive, these rats who had good environments, you couldn't make them addicted if you tried. Yeah. Whereas the ones that you... And, and so that all these studies in the laboratory, when you cage rats and you attach electrodes to them and then you show how they become desperate for drugs well of course they do <laughs> of course uh, they so do. would right. you be if you put in a cage and the electrodes were put into you you know it's like but, if we did all our research on prisoners that's right you know uh, uh and then uh, extrapolated that to the general society it's it's that's absurd right. that's right unbelievable you're familiar with robert sapolsky's work i take of it of course yeah yeah um yeah, on stress and so on. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. I I love his work. And his... that one, I'm gonna talk to him for my next book. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna see him. I'll be with him in Mexico in three weeks. I'm oh, speaking yeah. at the Ciudad de las Ideas. Okay. Um, it's like a TED thing that they do in in Mexico, and well, he'll listen, be there. Please convey my greetings. Okay. He will know me because we were in a film together called um, Zeitgeist Three. Oh yeah, I know those films. They're great. Mm-hmm. My guess is that he, like, that he, like me, didn't know he was going to be in that film. <laughs> we were just interviewed by this very nice interviewer. <laughs> Next thing you know. Zeitgeist 3. I never knew about Zeitgeist. Uh-huh. My guess is that Robert might be in the same position. But that segment where we're interviewed and James Wilkinson is interviewed and, uh, and is it James or the guy who talked about... Um, Equality in society, the spirit molecule, the spirit level. Oh, the spirit level, yeah. Wilkinson. It's Wilkinson, that's and, a great and, book. And yeah. uh, James Gilligan, who taught, studied violence and so on. That's a really good segment of the film. Hmm. And you can watch it online, actually, if you yeah. watch the first 45 minutes of that film. Would you please convey my greetings to Sapolsky? Yeah, definitely. And, 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 and uh, tell him I'd like to speak to him. Yeah. I, I, you know. Are you familiar with MAPS? Of course, I, I, I spoke at their... In fact, I gave a talk on Ayahuasca at their recent MAPS convention. Oh, okay. And Rick Doblin. And I know Rick very well. Yeah. In fact, I'll be seeing Rick on Monday night in, in, in New York. Well, give him my regards. Sorry, Saturday night. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I, because there's a film made by a local filmmaker called From Neurons to Nirvana. Oh, is, that's just played here in Vancouver. That's right. Yeah. And that's being uh, debuted in, or, or what's the word, premiered in New York on Saturday evening, and Rick was going to be there. Ah, oh, good. Uh, along with myself and some others, we'll be speaking there. Rick, I've known Rick for a long time. I I um okay. I started when my first class in graduate school was addiction oh, yeah. and uh I had before I even went into grad school like I was in my late 30s when I started grad school. Mm. Um I was very interested in shamanism and consciousness and ethnobotany and all that kind oh, of yeah. stuff. And I had written a bunch and done some research and all that. And I went into this class thinking, okay, this is going to be some typical bullshit. You know, drugs are bad. All drugs are the same, you know, whatever. And I was, like, ready to give this professor a real hard time. Turned out the professor was fantastic. He was wonderful. And one of the – we ended up being friends. And one of the things he did was introduce me to MAPS. And this was – 
in the mid nineties. And so I started writing for maps and, and, um, and I knew Andrew Weil. I'm sure you know Andrew Weil. I met him as well. Yeah, I've met Andrew. Yeah. Um, and he he, he, began, he he did a lot of that stuff in, the, in his earlier years. Oh yeah, Fant- yeah. his early books are yeah. are fantastic. The yeah. Marriage of the Sun and the Moon, The Natural yeah. Mind, yeah. Uh, Chocolate to Morphine, all that. Um, and I've interviewed Andrew for for this podcast. He was my first interview, yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, anyway, so I, I was in Boston, and I knew Rick lived in, near Boston, and I, you know, out of the blue, sent him an email. Hey, you know, if you have time for a coffee, I'd love to meet you. He invited me over to his house. I ended up spending all day at his house, hanging out with him and his kids and his wife and everything. And in the course of the conversation, uh, obviously, Rick, you know, we talked about me living in Spain and, you know, my interest in, and, uh, a couple of days later, I got an email from Rick saying, what are you doing in September? I said, well, I don't know, nothing. He said, you want to come to Israel for an ecstasy conference? Huh. And he so he invited me, all expenses paid. I didn't have any money those MDMA. days. Uh, yeah, for an MDMA conference, all the world's leading researchers in MDMA were there. Hmm. And Sasha Shulgin was there and all these people. And it was at the uh, Dead Sea Hyatt. It's the only time I've ever been to Israel. And the conference was actually funded by, um, partly by the Israeli military. Because they were very interested in MDMA as PTSD. a treatment for PTSD. Well, you know, the reason I'm going to New York is not actually for that premiere, but there's a conference at Omega Institute on PTSD and veterans. Yeah. So, Will Stanley Krippner be there? He just published a book on PTSD and veterans. I don't know. Do you know him, Stanley? No. Oh, he's a he's a wonderful guy. He was my mentor in grad well, school. I hope, I hope he'll be there then. Uh, so I'm so I'm speaking there on addiction on Saturday. Oh, excellent! But that evening there's going to be this premiere, and that's I'll, so I'll certainly see Rick. Yeah. And uh, so I, and I did give a talk on ayahuasca at the recent conference in Oakland. I, I can say the link for that. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the text somebody put it on an alternate, so the text of my talk is on alternate. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, no, yeah. ayahuasca. That, uh, sorry, did I interrupt you? No, I'm, I'm only. I was only going to say that 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 the Western medical model in which I was trained, it, it does things uh, brilliantly, uh, some things brilliantly, and uh, some things miraculously, and for the most part, completely misses the mark. Yeah. When it comes to understanding the human condition and chronic illness and the causes of illness. And it's only because they're not looking at the evidence. I mean, they, they keep talking about evidence-based practice, yeah. but I only wish. They, they're just not looking at the evidence. And, 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 and I'm talking about, never mind even the evidence from other cultures, I'm talking about the actual evidence of psychoneurology, epigenetics, brain development, uh, 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 immunology. If we only put it all together, but we don't. Yeah. And... and and then you know, on the other side of it is we're totally close to other modalities. Yeah. You know, so that so that if we can't prove it with our Western laboratory techniques, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 and, and yet you know, uh, there's thousands of years of tradition, which at least we ought to be interested in. You ever read a book called Lives of a Cell? No. Uh, it's by Lewis Thomas, who was the chief of <coughs> oncology at um, the Albert Einstein okay. clinic in, in New York. 
so very you know, classical, very successful, yeah. you know, medical doctor. And it was written in the seventies, I think. It's sort of a classic, um, uh, you know, pre Oliver Sacks and all that kind of okay. stuff of, of a medical doctor writing about patients and his thoughts. It's a beautiful book. And he, there was another book called Late Night Thoughts on Listening to Mahler's Tenth or something like really? that. Really, you know, it is the one I'd be interested in. Yeah, are you, are you into Mahler? <laughs> I got five versions of his symphonies. Oh. Leonard Bernstein, Mahler's yeah. second best piece of music I, I think I've ever heard. Well, we could debate that. He, <laughs> it's very emotional. I used to own it. He rings every ounce of emotion on, uh, out of it. In fact, I think he rings too much out of it. But well, but, but, but I mean, but anyway, he, Bernstein and Mahler to me seem to be kindred spirits. Well, yeah, and he, you know? and, he and he certainly, I think more than anyone, um, established Mahler. Uh, and you talk about frustration. You know, Gustav yeah. Mahler was one of the most frustrated guys who ever oh, lived. Yeah, I that's think. why he died of heart disease, I think. Yeah, a lot of trauma in his childhood. Yeah, as, and, as and he died sure quite you know. young. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And he was very frustrated in his, when he was in New York. Yeah, yeah. And, well, uh, the whole. But anyway, know. so Bernstein did certainly establish Mahler. I, th- I think did a lot to, to validate Mahler as a, yeah. as, a, as a composer. Well, I heard, I mean, after listening, you know, I sort of learned Mahler of listening to Bernstein oh, with yeah. a professor I had in college who loved yeah. Mahler. And uh, then in all his recordings that he had were all Bernstein. And then uh, I bought a record a couple of years later and it was Bruno Walter. Oh, yeah. Of the 10th? <sighs> no, I think it was the second or oh, yeah. third, maybe. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a beautiful second that he does, I yeah. heard. Yeah. It just, it, it seems so lethargic after listening, you know, after learning it the is. Bernstein. Bernstein's, uh, is just so energetic and sharp and, you know, in your face. Well, and Bruno Walter was very, blah, it just really? is like okay. a mudslide to me. Okay. But, you know, that, that's because that, that's I learned it. Well, I mean, I, I've heard the, the the Walter second and I have, I don't know, for all that you say, I really liked it. You know? <laughs> well, I certainly uh, don't want to take that away from you. <laughs> Uh, what the hell were we... T- oh, I wanted to say something. We were talking earlier about how societies replicate themselves and yeah. create frustrations and all that. And I just wanted to, to give you a little anecdote that might be useful for you in writing or whatever. You may already know this, but <clears throat> do you know the, the sort of godfather of advertising, uh, modern advertising, started in the 20s, uh, the first person to ever use uh, focus groups, um, you know, to sort of test concepts before sending them out. Are you talking about Freud or? Yeah, yeah. Bernays. Yeah, Bernays, yeah. Who was Freud's Freud, nephew. Freud, yeah, yes, you know, that. yeah, yeah. Just the, the interconnections are amazing. Yeah. Anyway, Lives of a Cell, one of the very interesting things, he it's essays, just short essays about, and essentially what he's saying is it's sort of the Gaia hypothesis that the earth mm-hmm. is a living thing, but he says it's a cell. It's got a membrane. It's got, you know, these different uh, elements that are interacting. And... One of the essays in there is uh, that relates to what you were just talking about with traditions and how, you know, science is like a flashlight. It only sees the area that it illuminates and assumes that that's all there is and ignores the darkness around it. In this essay, he talks about um, folk traditions for dealing with warts. And how societies all over the world have these traditions. Like in Ireland, you have a wart, you cut a potato, and you rub the wart with the potato, and then you bury it out in the yard under a full moon, and in three days your wart will be gone. Or, you know, some societies, they piss on it, or they you know rub garlic, or whatever. There are all sorts of different... Yeah, why didn't I think of that when I was in family practice? you pissing on it. Pissing yeah, on yeah, you can make some money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
which brings us back to shamanism and Amanita Muscaria, but that's a whole different story. Okay, but you were saying. Uh, so the... So his point was, this is an oncologist. He says, okay, the, all these traditions work. What's happening there? Mm-hmm. What's happening is that through this whatever arbitrary ritual that we've designed, the mind is distinguishing wart cell from non-wart cell. That's right. And while you're sleeping, it eliminates the wart cells. It's the immune system, yeah. So he says... That's what we're trying to do with radiation and chemotherapy and all these other things is distinguish one cell, the Mm -hmm. malignant cancer cells, Mm -hmm. from the cells that are surrounding them. Eliminate those cells. We already have this mechanism within us. That's right. And yet we're not spending a dime researching this. Why? Because pharmaceutical companies won't make any money from it, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't fit into the economics. But it is the if you look at it from a purely scientific evidence based perspective, yeah. as you were saying, it's the obvious route to trying to deal with this. Well, also, also, I mean, I mean, I think the pharmaceuticals have huge and um, overweening influence on medical practice, but I think it's more complex than that. It's also that we as people are so cut off from ourselves, yeah, and our own emotions and our own um, uh, unity with our bodies that we actually don't know how to do it. And, 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 and we don't perceive the healing potential that's actually uh, a reality inside every person. So we don't know how to enliven and invite that healing capacity to, 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 to be active. So then, then that leaves us with coming in from the outside and either killing it or cutting it out or poisoning it. Yeah. So it's, it's um, more than just, again, a pharmaceutical... Um, uh, control. It's also culturally we're so foreign to that, and we're trapped in our metaphors. Yeah, you see this with the brain so often. You know, now the metaphor for the brain is the computer. Yeah, you've got the you know your memory, your processing, your blah blah blah. People get trapped in that. It used to be that the brain was a steam engine, you know, and the, we sort of apply yeah. these these mechanistic uh, metaphors to the body. And, and, the and of course, the the truth is that when you look at the, the modern research on the brain and the mind, they're largely emotion-based. The computers are not emotion-based. Right. They're program-based. They're, you can say that they're mechanically analogs of the brain in some way, but really um, the human capacity to function and to learn and to develop and to grow is largely based on emotion. And, and uh, like Antonio Damasio and Descartes, you know, the, yeah. the importance of the emotional apparatus as the substrate for the intellectual apparatus. Right. And so those models, those metaphors of the human mind, they just don't work. They ignore it, yeah. They, they ignore that. You know, Stanley, talking about Stanley Krippner, he, I was speaking with him recently, he was talking about a very interesting idea that he'd been thinking about, which is that um, Stanley's a parapsychologist, an expert in um, shamanism. Okay. He hung, he, he was like good friends with Aldous Huxley okay. and... Uh, uh, Alan Watts and uh, Timothy Leary and that whole crowd uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. He's a psychologist, teaches in San Francisco. Um, and he and I became great friends when I was in grad school. And he took me with him all around the world to conferences where he was speaking. <clears throat> he would just always ask for, uh, you know. Was it with you in conferences that people take you to conferences all around? Uh, yeah, well, now I'm, I'm going on my own. But uh, in those days, what happened was Stanley and I became 
friends and I was free to travel because my life was very low impact and, you know, I was living hand to mouth so I could always just take off. And, um, and we, we, yeah, we got to be great friends. He took me, the first trip we ever went on together was to Brazil and he said, is there something you'd particularly like to see in Brazil? And I said, ayahuasca. I'm very interested right. in ayahuasca. Right. So he arranged to have us um, invited to an ayahuasca ceremony with um, the Union de Vegetal yeah, Church yeah, yeah. in uh, Porto Alegre, <clears throat> which was a fantastic experience. Very interesting. Um, but he also got us invited to the Lascaux caves in central France. And mm-hmm. we went to Morocco together and a shamanism conference in Germany and in India and Argentina, where I met Robert Ader. That was with Stanley as well. Um, so he's been a wonderful influence in my life and a, a great friend. Um, he just turned 80 recently. And he wrote, just wrote, a, wrote a book on PTSD? He just wrote a, published a book a year or two ago on uh, PTSD and veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, Stanley's idea was he, we were talking about evolution and these, these innate mechanisms for self-healing. And uh, he made the point that in shamanic cultures, which are all human societies until the last few hundred years, basically. Um, One's ability to activate these innate healing mechanisms was a very strong um, evolutionary advantage. It was, it was an adaptive advantage. So if you, and what, uh, doctors call hypnotic ability. If you had high hypnotic ability, so a ritual um, or dance or music or whatever could um, touch you very deeply and help mm-hmm. you restructure your yeah. life very deeply, you were much more likely to survive than someone who didn't have that mm-hmm. ability. Mm-hmm. So that was a favored characteristic for our species mm-hmm. until very recently. Mm-hmm. And now it's something we completely ignore. And worse than ignore because suppress the, because yeah. these people tend to be highly sensitive <clears throat> and when you're highly sensitive you're uh, also more hurt right and when you're more hurt if the environment doesn't support you you're more likely to develop coping mechanisms and, and right. shut down against that hurt right and so very often the people who are the uh, the most addicted are also the most sensitive uh, yeah or or, or, or and, and, and so that we actually actively hurt these people a lot. Um, yeah, we 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 victimize or we we destroy people who, in many ways, are born to be leaders, who are yeah. born to be who are superior beings in some yeah, ways. Um, one of the wonder, wonderful but also heartbreaking things um, I'm writing about in about politics is that in hunter gatherer societies. The one thing you can do that will disqualify you from a role of leadership is express any interest in leadership. Mm. So ego mm-hmm. is a disqualification for being a leader. People consider that to be ridiculous. Yeah. And yet, look at our society. Those are the people that we, you know, we elect to be leaders. They have to have the ego. Or look, at, if you just look at American presidential politics, it was Michael Dukakis, I think, who at some point had seen a some before depression or some, you know, uh, that yeah. was considered to be just yeah. unacceptable. You yeah. can't have a person with, I mean, they're all nuts, these American presidents. <clears throat> Every single one of them is certifiably yeah. crazy. You, know, yeah. you have to look at their behaviors. But 
but to actually acknowledge that you have a mental Jimmy Carter when he said that in my heart I've lost I've lust after women. Well, who the hell has not? <laughs> and this was considered that he just destroyed himself politically. Yeah. For yeah. he's just being honest. Yeah, he's being a human being. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 that's and, not permitted. That's not permittable. You know, but you have these you have these automatons like Obama and Bush. You know, yeah. As, as the uh, on, on the other hand, Clinton and Kennedy, who never say publicly. That in my heart I lusted that woman. That just screwed everybody in skirts that they ever run across. That's right. perfectly okay. Yeah. Well. You know. So in other words, what people mustn't um, the the real issue is vulnerability. People must not admit to vulnerability. Mm. Uh, you can do whatever you want, but don't show that you're vulnerable. Yeah. And once you show you're vulnerable, you're not not qualified to be a leader in our society. What do you think? Where Where is this all going? Um, Are you hopeful? Uh, I mean, I know we're supposed y- to be yes, hopeful. Yes, I am. It means that you and I get to write lots of books and lots of you will buy them because it's so dysfunctional that uh, anybody who provides any kind of a different point of view is immediately welcome. So this is great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, said, you know said one vulture <clears throat> to the other. <laughs> said one, yeah. I mean, no, my, my friend Gordon, who I mentioned earlier, sometimes I joke with him. I uh-huh. said, do you realize that you and I have built careers out of saying the obvious? <laughs> just saying the truth that's the hardest thing to say yeah what are we actually saying we're saying that if children are well treated and loved and respected they'll do well they'll and, do and, well emotionally in health but maybe not so well in no, the professional world no, no, they'll do well in general because they'll be confident they'll be connected yeah uh they'll be interested they'll be motivated really that's what it comes down to um and uh, certainly they'll do well health-wise. And then if people's needs are not met, if children are not responded to, they're not respected, they're not understood, and if worse than that, they're traumatized, then they won't do so well. You know, they'll have many more challenges on the way to doing well, and, and many of them will succumb. And so that the people I worked in the downtown east side of Vancouver, the addicted clients, every single one of them had been traumatized as children. Yeah, you know, and 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 uh, and all the people I ever saw with cancer and other diseases, every single one had su- suffered significant emotional losses as children. You know, so we were just saying the obvious, and so I'm being you know pseudo cynical in my response to you. Where are we going? Is that the dynamic in our society is getting worse? I mean, it's no longer a secret that. The few that control are controlling more, and the few that possess possess more, and and that uh, the, the margin uh, between um, what used to be called middle class and lower class is 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 being eroded. That people at the very bottom don't live as well, they don't live as long, they don't live as healthily. Um, we know that we're destroying the environment. All these things we know. So I have some, I have faith in human beings but i'm a chomsky uh, he was asked once he was a pessimist or an optimist and he said strategically i'm an optimist but tactically i'm a pessimist mm. in other words in the short term things are going to get a lot worse before they're going to get better yeah and uh, because it because it takes a lot to wake people up yeah people have to be left with nothing before they'll actually the trouble is not only will they have to be left with nothing they have to be left with nothing but they have to also be left with a sense of a possibility. Oh. Because just being left with nothing just makes you despairful and... Uh, yeah, learned and, helplessness. And, and, and it may make you follow a Hitler. 
You know? Well, I mean, wasn't that part of Hitler's power that he provided hope? It was. Yeah. Yeah. And so that uh, I'm afraid that even certainly something has to happen to wake us up. I mean, in my personal life, I learn a lot more <clears throat> when something happens that doesn't work for me. And I finally get it that it doesn't work. And I have to move in a different direction. That's often painful yeah, or difficult. You have, you have to, hit to hit a wall. So do you think we're, as as a society... Uh, all right, the, the reason I'm asking this is there's a, a line we quote in Sex at Dawn from the playwright Arthur Miller. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Marilyn Monroe and Kennedy yeah. and all that. Yeah. Uh, he said, an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. Yeah. And I feel like we are living at a moment, a historical moment, when mm-hmm. virtually every basic illusion of Western society is exhausted, mm-hmm. whether it's the banking, the trust in the mm-hmm. banking sector or government or uh, you know, American foreign policy as a defender of freedom and good. And like every sports, you know, the integrity of sports, every I can't think of a major institution, the church, whatever, that isn't discredited. Medicine. Western medicine, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it just seems that that everything has been exposed as corrupt and empty, and you know, and not to mention global warming and the depletion of the ocean, and you know, all this. But, thing. See, but, but that, that's true. But all that leaves many people not more enlightened and more impelled to search for some uh, humane and positive solution. It leaves people depressed and apathetic. And alienated, mm. you know, at least many people that way. Yeah, you know? and and that's the key question: is is how to be where do we go from massive apathy? Because it's, look, it's fine for you and I as as um, university educated, um, socially engaged, and in our respective fields, successful people to have these insights. But really, you look across the social spectrum a lot of people are more hurt much more disempowered much less um capable of turning their lives around than you and i might be and um they're not seeing through everything they're just resigned to everything and uh that's the problem i mean if people actually saw through stuff that would be a, a position to move forward from but it's not so much that people see through it. It's just that they think that's how it is and it can't be any other way. Right. They just resign to it. Right. And uh, that is a big, the biggest buttress of this system is that resignation that people have, that learned helplessness that, that, that people have acquired. Look, I grew up in communist Hungary until I was 13. Everything was propaganda. Everything was party control. Everything was manipulation. And most people saw that. Right. The system of control here, the system of propaganda here, is infinitely more sophisticated yeah. and more pervasive and more successful. I mean, those commies, they knew nothing yeah. compared to the control and propaganda apparatus, yeah. apparatus that functions in a society. The best way to control someone is to convince them they're free. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's, it blows my mind when I hear Americans talking about freedom. And you know our heroes over in Afghanistan protecting our freedom, yeah. and then those, and then those, <laughs> then those heroes come back traumatized, yeah. yeah, 
and how are they treated? Yeah, they're not treated at all. There's a two or three year waiting list yeah. for mental health yeah. uh, treatment in the, so the, the supporting the troops means yeah. waving the flag at football games. Right, put a yellow ribbon on your tree, yeah, but yeah. it does not mean actually supporting the human beings that come back broken or not sending them out in the first place. Of course, to do things that yeah, yeah. Well. Uh, Okay, let's let's end on a high note here. Uh, Amanita muscaria. Okay. Uh, the fame. I'm sure, sure you know what it is, but for people who don't, I don't. I, I don't actually. Oh, you don't. Oh, it's it's the the famous uh, hallucinogenic mushroom you see in Alice in Wonderland and elsewhere. Uh, the okay. red cap with the white dots on it. Okay. Okay. Um, which interestingly uh, grows un, in in acidic soil, which tends to be the soil around pine trees. Mm. Christmas trees, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and is eaten by reindeer, mm-hmm. uh, and has been used for uh, millennia by the the Lap people, the Sami people mm-hmm. in the north of Europe, mm-hmm. um, in shamanic practices. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that um, unlike psilocybin mushrooms and uh, some other hallucinogens, it's extremely toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, if you eat it, mm-hmm. but you can't, you can eat it. But one of the things they did to get around that was, um, that they would watch reindeer eating them and then either shoot the reindeer and eat the meat or wait for the reindeer to piss and drink the piss because Amanita, the, the, the how psychoactive, you, how do you mold. catch the piss of a reindeer? Good question. That sounds like a cone, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> how do you catch the piss of a reindeer? Um, probably involves tying it down or something, but, um, the uh, the psychoactive element in Amanita muscaria does not get metabolized. Uh-huh. So it comes out in the piss, and in fact, it's concentrated. Yeah. So one of the things that some um, Sami shaman would do was they would eat the, the Amanita themselves, and then their people would drink their piss mm. and trip on the piss of the shaman. Wow. Now, you know, you're, if, if your shaman's piss can make you trip, that's a pretty, you know, powerful shaman right there. Pretty impressive. Yeah. So I, you reminded me of that. We were talking about pissing on something earlier. Something with oh, your, the wart. Oh, the wart. Yeah. <laughs> pissing on. So there is a tradition of magical piss in yeah. some shamanic uh, societies. Yeah. Listen, I know you've got stuff to do and uh, you're a very busy guy. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank yeah, you. me too. Yeah. And, and I hope people will read your books. Uh, oh, before we finish, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you, In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts, yeah. it's one of the coolest titles. It's so yeah. evocative, so... Yeah. I mean, it just—I—I I, I feel like I enter another world when I listen to that phrase. Where, what's the origin of that? It's a Buddhist phrase uh, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, I think, um, or some branch of Buddhism. <clears throat> the world people cycle through six realms: the realm of uh-huh. the human realm, which is ordinary selves; uh-huh. the animal realm, which is our drives, our instincts; the hell realm, which is unbearable emotions. The realm of jealous titans and the realm of and the god realm. Each of these represents really different states that we all know. The realm of the hungry ghosts has creatures depicted with large empty bellies, tiny or narrow scrawny necks, and very narrow gullets. So they have these large empty bellies, but they're in inca- small mouths. So they're incapable of filling that that emptiness, and that's the realm of the addict. Wow. And 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 my contention is, as I say in the book. 
in the realm of hungry ghosts and addiction that we are in a hungry ghost realm to escape the hell realm of unbearable emotions. We're actually stuffing it down all the time, trying to get something from the outside to deal with what's unbearable. And so that's what that's what that's where the image comes from. Thanks. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. He said, "Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you." Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.